Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this uh, discussion in the LSE European Institute and European Parliament Information Office uh, series uh, for the European Parliament elections of EU issues and states arising uh, out of the European Parliament, uh, imminently of the European Parliament uh, elections. Uh, there is a hashtag uh, for this event, uh, which is uh, hash LSE EU20, should you be so interested. Uh, I might just draw your attention actually now from the outset that uh, afterwards there will be uh, a reception for, uh, for to which everybody is very cordially invited. It will take place in the atrium on the ground floor of the main building, the old building directly opposite the concourse, uh, on the other side of the concourse. Uh, so I'm delighted if everybody would like to come and join, join, join us for a glass of wine afterwards. So, well, why this topic? Well, I guess you must know why this topic, or axiomatically, I guess you wouldn't, you wouldn't be here. Because after so many years of agonizing about Europe's democratic deficit, uh, so many years of relentless lobbying by the European Parliament uh, for an increase in its power as Europe's only um, uh, democratic supranational institution, after so much heat, and some will say not always that much light, about how to increase the accountability of EU decision-making, and by extension, the legitimacy of the European Union, Europe's leaders and their wisdom came up with this. Uh, it's the idea of co-decision between the European Parliament and the Council of Ministers, laid down in the Maastricht Treaty, and now since the Lisbon Treaty, the ordinary method of lawmaking in the EU. Well, the 20th anniversary of co-decision uh, and the run-up to the European Parliament elections would seem to offer a pretty good opportunity as, uh, to stand back and to work out how co-decision has played out in practice. Is the EU any more democratic for co-decision? Has efficiency of the EU uh, been compromised? Or have ingenious ways been found to keep the decisions flowing? And are those ways always democratic? Are we in a better place than we were in the old days of the consultation procedure and then the cooperation procedure? And have improvements in the scrutiny, in the scrutiny of the EU's exec executive kept pace with the increase of the, uh, in the EP's lawmaking capacity? Have, have we been barking up the wrong tree with uh, uh, this obsession with lawmaking? And where does the EU Commission fit into the practice, into the picture? Well, we couldn't have assembled a more expert panel to explain to us what really has been going on uh, to tell us where the, the actual power uh, lies, so that we do not have to rely on the, all the formal organograms and flowcharts that we're all familiar with in, in political science textbooks. Now, on the panel this evening, we have Dr. Sarah Heyman, uh, who is Assistant Professor of European Politics in the LSE European Institute, and the co-founder founder and co-director of VoteWatch, which I hope is known to most of you, if not all of you by now. Uh, VoteWatch, which has, which has really broken extraordinary ground by shining a torch into, into the dark corridors of power in Brussels and in Strasbourg. Um, at the end of the panel, uh, we have Fergal O'Regan, who is head of unit at the European Ombudsman, and who brings a, a distinguished legal brain um, uh, to bear on, on real-life questions 
uh, hard edge uh, questions of accountability and transparency in the European <coughs> Union. And uh, in the middle, Anthony Teasdale, <coughs> Director General of the European Parliamentary uh, Research Service. Uh, he is Anthony's senior visiting fellow in the LSE European Institute and someone who has occupied key roles both in the European Parliament and in government, in the British government. So he comes to this topic both from the member state angle and the community, and the community one. So, as well as helping us to see the wood for the trees, hopefully, let's hope that this uh, discussion can think through as well how, um, how the EU can maybe get, get to a better place. And when we have, uh, when I open it afterwards, after our presentations from the panel, um, don't feel bound, um, uh, don't feel bound to just to make comments or put questions as such of the panel. People who would like to offer their own observation, insight, uh, on uh, this interesting question we're, addre we're addressing, please, please do so. As I say, it doesn't have to take a conventional Q&A format. It would be good to have a discussion. Um, and, but we'll come to that presently. First of all, we're going to hear from our experts, and I'm going to invite uh, Dr. Sarah Heyman um, to, to, to kick off, to share some of her thoughts uh, with us. Sarah Heyman. Thank you very much, Morris, um, for this, and thank you to everyone for coming. So um, I want to start my points uh, today based on a report um, by VoteWatch that came out in December where we looked at the performance of the European Parliament and the Council and how things have developed within the two institutions as well as between them. But I won't dive into matters of the European Parliament as much because Anthony is obviously here to uh, much better cover that topic. But I want to, to make four points based on, on this report as well as the research that I do, which is very much focused on uh, Council decision-making, governments bargaining and strategies, and how also transparency has um, affected decision-making in the Council in the last few years, especially since the Lisbon Treaty. So the first point I want to make is that we are obviously no longer looking at a Council which is dictated by consensus decision-making. We all have heard of the Council as being this very consensual and club-like uh, body uh, at the EU level where governments could come together and find mutually beneficial um, agreements. Things have changed. Um, in the last uh, 20 years, partly with the introduction of the co-decision procedure, but also for a number of other reasons, we have seen a consistent um, increase in what we could now, by now call contested uh, politics. We see that uh, legislation uh, since 1999 when the Council for the first time started to release information in any meaningful way from the Council meetings, legislation has decreased since then. The volume of legislation adopted in the Council has gone down, but at the same time we've seen that um, contest has gone up. This has not so much been um, due to new treaties uh, or more formal uh, changes in the Council, but the biggest change we've seen has simply been enlargement. 
moving from, it comes very natural, one can say, moving from 15 and the ability to meet in more informal um, discussions has meant that with 20, now eight uh, member states, things have obviously changed. We have seen a formalization of council meetings. We've seen a different engagement of ministers in the topics that are discussed. Um, We've seen that voting takes place on a more regular basis. And we see that governments more often actually make use of the possibility for either voting against or abstaining on a proposal rather than passively support it through. We've also seen that governments um, position themselves differently within the council setting than what we've previously uh, thought. Um, The usual block alliances of geographic clusters is not so evident in the council any longer. Uh, We do see some policy areas where that might be the case, but um, governments have a tendency to vote and also make use of what's called formal statements um, depending on their national audiences. It's very much about also what goes on at national level, national parliamentary scrutiny, as much as it is about what goes on between fellow negotiators in the council. So legislative uh, activity, one can say, since 1999 has decreased, um, especially since the enlargement, but it's still on a very impressive level if we compare it to national uh, legislative output. But more importantly, this change in the contestation is, is of great interest. That doesn't mean that we don't see corridor bargaining and uh, that a lot of informal decision-making still takes place. But at the end of all of that, we will see that governments have to put their stamp on the piece of paper and, and actively uh, oppose or support the, the, um, the legislation in a, in, at a much more frequent level now. So going to a second point that um, the council has also had to open up its eyes a bit to what goes uh, on outside its own four walls. So um, a lot of decision-making is obviously led by a number of key people, such as the presidency, which used to be on a rotating basis, but now we have also permanent representation in that uh, respect. But key people, key countries, will take a lead on individual pieces of legislation. We see the same happening with rapporteurs in the parliament. But the point is here that we're not only seeing council decision-making coming up with a common position that is then negotiated with the parliament. It's much more a back-and-forth process than that, so that a number of represent, uh, representatives from the council will take a lead on a piece of legislation and pre-negotiate that with the parliament in the so-called trilogue meetings. Um, I have in uh, a last piece of, of research found that this can, by some people be suggested to be seen a bit of like leaders and followers, that we see divides in the council of some countries, perhaps on a fairly consistent basis, being the leaders on policy makings, whereas others are more the followers. No one wants to be seen as the losers in the big picture, but really we need to look into how consistent those patterns are and how important that is for policy making in general and within specific policy areas. 
Um, another thing about these alliances across the institutions is that council decision-making with 28 governments is very difficult. And this means that we, on a number of uh, issues uh, and pieces of legislation in the last few years, have seen that amendments and proposals were made in the council, but then it was realized that they wouldn't go through council. And actually, they ended up in the uh, European Parliament's committee and uh, pursued in that respect. So again, I think that what has been a really important factor for the council decision-making is that it's no longer a very closed institution in terms of its own decision-making. We know that um, uh, key actors will pursue strategies that also involve the other institution in order to get their preferences through. So um, the third of my four points relates to the changes that we have seen in transparency uh, and the level of transparency in the council and what effect that has had on decision-making. When we talk to uh, PERM reps in, the, um, in Brussels, when we talk to ministers, etc., we immediately get the message that, well, opening up and reporting more on legislative decision-making in the council will definitely have an effect on the efficiency of the institution. That's also the finding that much of the political science literature has had in the U.S. But... I've worked in the Danish Foreign Office, I have experience from Brussels, and I don't buy that argument on a general level. So we started looking into it, and it's very clear that obviously at times you need closed doors. <coughs> that argument can be made for a number of core policy areas, but on the whole, we need to ask the questions of when transparency actually might help foster efficiency, because that is the case. And in a number of interviews we did in the autumn of last year, it came out that obviously with 28 countries, you need much more stringent record-keeping of what goes on. And um, by making these records public at some point during the legislative process, possibly (coughs) even just at the very end, one can, be, can trust what fellow negotiators really, how they position themselves. It also helps to, to give some consistency across meetings. And with this back and forth between the parliament, that's certainly necessary. So the argument that transparency is always to the detriment of um, efficiency doesn't seem to hold true. We, ha- we can say that some element of transparency is necessary for systemic trust, uh, but also for simply making things happen on individual pieces of legislation. So my last point here is that um, we very often, all of this obviously feeds into the, to the whole debate about legitimacy and whether there's a democratic deficit in in the EU, which is a hot topic now in the run-up to the elections as well. And um, there's much to be said about the European Parliament, and also increasingly so we hear about the role of national parliaments in that whole story. But based on these developments that we've seen in the Council, and I, I believe that there's much more to come in terms of insight into what happens in the Council, I think that whole debate needs to start with a focus on the Council and how our ministers and how our governments are held accountable in Brussels, whether that's by the European Parliament in cooperation when they legislate, 
or simply when the parliament scrutinizes the uh, council decisions, or if it's by national parliaments and their various committees, there's no doubt that the most intransparent and unaccountable institution is still the council, although we've seen these various um, changes that I've mentioned. So I think I'll I'll conclude here, but basically to just sum up my my four points. I argue that um, we don't have a club of consensus any longer. We are beyond that point, although we still hear it quite repeatedly when also our politicians talk about how decisions are made in in Brussels. Um, I think that on my second point that um, decision-making in the council is no longer a closed uh, black box. It's also about the alliances that are made to the other institutions. And then that this argument of transparency against efficiency is really no longer a valid um, equation to, to just accept. So I'll stop here. Sarah, thank you for getting us off to a cracking start. Um, lots of uh, interesting observations and uh, um, yeah, um, uh, already you see the, the makings of a very good open discussion uh, afterwards. Thank you for getting us uh, to kind of off such a good start. Um, I'm now going to ask uh, Fergal Regan um, to you. share some thoughts from yes. his um, first point from the European Ombudsman. Thank you. First of all, I'd like to thank uh, the LSE and Parliament uh, for uh, inviting me here uh, this evening. Um, it's, it's, it's indeed a pleasure to discuss these very important issues to you. Sarah mentioned the issue, issue of trust. Um, the EU has, uh, has a problem of, of, of trust, and it's not surprising. For many citizens, it appears very distant and, uh, and extremely complicated. Uh, it's necessarily complicated. It's a system of uh, seeking, Sarah mentioned the issue of seeking consensus, seeking consensus in the Council amongst 28 member states. Uh, uh, co-decision itself is something which would be, uh, it, it, there's no equivalent at national level uh, in, uh, which would reflect the, comp- the necessary complexity of the system. And that raises a significant challenge because if we can't generate a sufficient degree of trust on the part of citizens, we are going to have a significant problem of legitimacy, democratic legitimacy uh, uh, for the EU. And it's an existential problem, especially in certain member states. I'm going to focus on the issue of of the Council and Parliament, but let me just take a slightly broader view for for a few moments uh, at the legislative process. And uh, let me maybe make one or two points about how the Ombudsman as an institution which was conceived as a mechanism of um, uh, empowering citizens to hold the institutions accountable and thereby increase the trust uh, of citizens in the EU and, the, uh, and, the, and its institutions, um, uh, how the Ombudsman has sought to, uh, to, uh, to, to, to shine some light on, on this process. As regards the Commission, um, Of course, the Commission has the legal obligation to publish proposals uh, which are then submitted uh, to the Council and Parliament in the context of of co-decision. But an interesting and very important aspect of uh, increasing transparency, accountability and trust uh, in the entire process is making available the various uh, uh, um, 
contributions which give rise to those proposals, such as, for example, the inter-service consultations. We had a recent case concerning the regulation on the common fisheries policy where uh, access was sought and eventually given in, in, in recent weeks to the inter-service consultations from uh, 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 DG Mare, so which uh, the Director General concerning Fisheries, DG uh, Reggio, <coughs> and DG Marked. Uh, this is all. In, this is important in terms of shining a light on the process leading up to the generation of a, a, a Commission proposal. Um, the specific subject matter of our discussion tonight, however, is focusing on uh, on, on co-decision as it occurs between. Um, Parliament and, um, and the Council. Parliament is, by definition, almost, uh, an institution which is, which is transparent. Of course, plenary meetings, committee meetings occur in public. Uh, there are a number of issues which the Ombudsman is looking at. Uh, for example, the minutes of, uh, of committee coordinators, uh, which, are, which are not currently made public. But as a general rule, one would make the observation that Parliament is an extremely transparent, by necessity one would be very concerned if it, were, if it wasn't, an extremely transparent uh, uh, institution when it is acting in its uh, legislative capacity. The same uh, uh, cannot be said, uh, of course, uh, for, for the Council. And I think maybe just to stay, take a step back, it's, 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 it's not surprising when one looks at it from a perspective of, of, of ingrained culture. The, the permanent representatives working in the council are generally career diplomats. Their natural instinct is not one of a legislator. It is one of, uh, uh, of discretion and uh, negotiation behind closed doors. And I think one needs to understand, bear in mind that there is a, an ingrained cultural aspect to the, and, and not just simply in terms of the, 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 the legal rules. Of course, just mentioning legal rules, there is the treaty specifically states that the council must act in public when it's acting in its legislative uh, uh, function. So clearly, it, 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 there is a legal basis for acting, acting in public. But as an institution, its natural instinct is not naturally to um, uh, uh, expose itself to, um, uh, to public scrutiny. Of course, we've seen uh, significant um, inroads in terms of increasing transparency through the courts. Uh, I won't make this into a discussion on, on, on law, but I think it's important to note that the European courts, through two very important cases, Turco and uh, um, uh, Access Info Europe, have imposed upon the Council an obligation to release documents which are generated in the context of the Council when it's working in its legislative function. Very sensitive documents. Le the legal opinion, uh, Turku concerned opinions of the uh, legal service of the Council, submitted to uh, uh, the uh, permanent representatives uh, functioning, working in the Council. And um, uh, Access Info Europe r related to identifying the, the member states that took a position on a particular uh, legislative act. Actually, it was, it was quite, quite ironic. It related to the uh, regulation on access to documents itself. Uh, uh, so it was rather ironic that the Council was being rather untransparent when it was discussing 
uh, uh, the uh, regulation on access to documents itself. It's important because the court, when it's looking at what the council is doing there, I would take the view that it's, it's looking at it from a constitutional perspective in terms of what the council is as an institution and what EU legislating should be. It should be open. And if it's not open, then, well, we have a problem in terms of trust and democratic legitimacy. So, of course, um, uh, and, and, and I'll be brief about this and because I think it would be very interesting to open up the discussion. Okay, so what happens in terms of trilogues? Because trilogues is an almost clash of cultures because in a trilogue you will have, okay, it's a mechanism of shortcutting the very complicated, convoluted and long and, and uncertain uh, system of co-decision by avoiding second readings and, uh, and, and thereby efficiently, if you understand efficiency in terms of an ability to close a particular dossier, efficiency in terms of uh, um, uh, uh, concluding uh, the legislative process. Because in such circumstances, um, uh, you have the parliaments whose natural instincts is to be open, and I'm sure... I don't know maybe if, uh, whether Anthony would agree. I don't think there have been requests for access to documents of uh, the minutes, Parliament's minutes of trilogues, but I'm sure that the natural instinct of Parliament, and I'm, I hope it's legal reasoning in relation to any such request, would be to release such minutes. Um, but certainly that would not be uh, the position of, 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 of the Council. Certainly uh, it would be something that the European Ombudsman, as an institution, which has trumpeted uh, the importance of transparency in terms of building trust, it would be important that we would um, uh, uh, seek to convince, the Ombudsman, of course, cannot issue binding rulings like the court, but seek to convince the institutions of the merits of opening up that process. I think it would be very interesting as part of our discussion to see, well, what would that do to that very process Itself, what alterations would occur? To, Sarah already mentioned uh, how the the, 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 the the characteristic of uh, the council as a consensus, as, as an institution which worked through consensus, has modified over time. Well, it would be interesting to look at to what extent would transparency. We would hope that it's inevitable that that process will become more transparent. We can then talk about precisely how far that will go, but it's inevitable that it will become more transparent. To what extent will that alter the nature of how trialogues function? You know, and I'll end on this particular point. Very often you will read in, uh, especially the British press, references to nameless bureaucrats in Brussels taking decisions, uh, do people realize that the most powerful bureaucrats in Brussels are the representatives of the member states? They're national civil servants working within the permanent representatives, highly competent, extremely dedicated uh, people, but they're not, public, they're not elected officials. You will have the MEP rapporteur sitting on one side of the table in a trilogue representing uh, the parliament. You may have a minister and a, who has a, a democratic mandate from his uh, 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 electorate in his member state on the other side, but very often you will have the permanent representative, a career civil servant. 
So it's quite ironic when you see references to, uh, you know, these nameless bureaucrats that they're in the main, of course, you know, you can talk about the commission, whatever, but being present in a trialogue and negotiating legislation is, in fact, if one uh, uh, steps back, is the most important uh, um, activity occurring in Brussels. So uh, I think it's, when I relate that now to the point I just made, well, would that process whereby the task of negotiating legislation is delegated to permanent representatives, would that continue to occur if that process were more transparent? Would ministers be as willing to, if it were known to the public, to delegate this task to permanent representatives um, uh, in a situation where the trilogues would, as they're ongoing or uh, once they've finished, uh, uh, if, if the minutes of those meetings were made public. I'll, leave, I'll hand over to Anthony, but uh, thank you for, uh, for listening. Listen, hope you forward to it. Well, Fergal, thank you for some very uh, punchy and incisive comments. More grist to the mill. Um, and uh, thank you very much. Anthony, please, your thoughts. Thank you very much indeed, Maurice. Um, and thank you to the other speakers for very thought-provoking um, a set of remarks and also thank you to the European Parliament's London office and the LSE for hosting the event. As I work for the European Parliament and I also have an affiliation at the LSE here, I need to be a little careful what I say. Uh, I shall uh, be speaking very much in a personal capacity and not on behalf of the Parliament, which is my employer. You'll be relieved to know. Um, a lot of interesting issues have been raised, and I'm, I'm not going to kind of give my um, separate take on this. I thought I would pick up on various issues that have already uh, arisen and give my interpretation of what's going on for what it's worth. Sarah is quite right. There's been a decline in the volume of legislation in the European Union, and it's something which has gone virtually unnoticed. And I think there are three or four reasons for this, and they're all quite important. The first is that the European Union now occupies the so-called occupied field which uh, community lawyers talked about for many years, has now been extended to nearly all areas of union policy, of, of, of policy except certain domestic issues like social security and health. And what that means is that the EU has a legislative body of uh, uh, the ACQUI, as it's known in the jargon, legislative measures in place in very many areas. And therefore, a lot of the legislation that now comes out of Brussels is essentially updating existing law rather than building law from scratch. There are exceptions to that. Banking union at the moment is a very, very good example, and before that, financial services reform at the height of the, the crisis. But generally, what Mario Monti called in the Monti report market maintenance rather than market uh, creation is the name of the game. And that tends to mean that the legislation that now comes through the system is more technical, it's often shorter, it's more focused, and it very often goes through a long gestation period in which some <coughs> of the more ideologically uh, problematic issues or issues which are going to confront um, resistance uh, very strongly from particular vested interests are screened out. There's much less of the back-of-the-envelope um, policymaking in the European uh, Union political system than there was probably uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Now, this has a number of consequences, but what it means more than anything else is that in many ways the EU lawmaking process has become less interesting politically. 
Um, Sarah and colleagues at the, at the LSE have done a fantastic job in opening up the interstices of this through the vote watch process, first of all vis-à-vis the Parliament and now vis-à-vis the Council of Ministers. But the reality is that for an awful lot of people, EU decision-making may already have been seen, but has certainly become more technical uh, and more narrow-gauge than it used to be. And the advent of advanced consultation, impact assessment, evaluation of existing law, and the whole kind of policy cycle which the European Commission now talks about uh, is promoting that process. So it's always going to be difficult, even in an election year, to get people interested in the nitty-gritty work which the Council and the Parliament do together uh, through co-decision or any other uh, form of decision-making. Co-decision, of course, has become the new norm. Um, As a result of the Lisbon Treaty, it applies in nearly all areas. Before Lisbon, it applied in obviously fewer, and the only area, significant political area apart from foreign policy where it doesn't apply, is in uh, own resources and tax harmonisation. Nearly all other areas of mainstream EU policymaking are now subject to this. But the problem has been that just as co-decision has expanded and the European Parliament has shared more and more of the legislative power with the Council of Ministers, so some of the natural tendencies towards secrecy in the Council have been imported into the European Parliament. Why? Because it matters. And once an institution matters, it's much more difficult to keep the real decision-making process fully open. And the Parliament campaigned for decades to open up the Council of Ministers, only to slip to some degree, almost by osmosis, into a situation where it became itself subject to some of the same um, tendencies, some of the the same ways and byways of secret decision-making, if you like, which for many years it criticised. Now, there's a very lively debate in the European Parliament about whether this is good or bad. I mean, if you listen, for example, to the President of the European Parliament, Martin Schulz, Uh, he criticises the growth of first-reading agreements. And this growth has been spectacular. And, of course, the first-reading agreements are based on trialogue meetings which are uh, in private, whereas if you go to second or third reading, it's a much more open process played out in plenary. And just to take the numbers on this, because it's useful, I think, particularly for students in the audience to be aware of this, if you go back to two parliaments ago, the 1999-2004 parliament, 28% of what are known in the jargon as files, co-decision files, that's pieces of legislation decided by co-decision, were adopted at first reading. If you take the current parliament from uh, July, to, June 2000, July 2009 to February this year, uh, 83% have been adopted at first reading and 8% uh, at something called early second reading, which is essentially the, just the reconfirmation of a uh, first, uh, first reading deal. So we now have only 9% which genuinely goes to second reading or third reading, whereas back in 1990 to 2004, there was 72%. So there's been a radical shift in the way that law is made in the European Union. The second uh, thing that I would like to, to focus on in this is to say that the title of this, is, uh, this, this uh, discussion is, I think, Accountability and Efficiency. The EU system is amazingly efficient, and we sometimes kind of ignore this. Um, If you compare it with the United States, and I think the relevant comparison is, say, with the US Congress, because you don't have a legislature that is controlled uh, specifically by a government or is supporting a government, uh, as you find in most uh, European uh, democracies, 
notably, of course, the, uh, this country, um, around about 98% of legislation that is proposed by the European Commission gets adopted. The average time is about 20, it's varied you know, from year to year, cycle to cycle, but it's around 20 months. And as we've just seen, around 91% of that is agreed at first or early second reading. So this is a highly efficient decision-making process. And just to take a concrete example of this, if you look at the plenary session of the European Parliament last week in Strasbourg, more legislative files were adopted in the course of that plenary than in the US Congress during the whole of last year. Now, these pieces of legislation may characteristically have been smaller, but nobody, I think, can say that the EU system is inefficient. The question is how democratic, how accountable, how responsive is it? And this, of course, is the issue which now we're focusing on as we approach the European elections. This leads me to my third observation, which we haven't talked about so far, which is the question of turnout in the European elections. Everybody, <coughs> as we approach the Euro elections, is, is, is focused on this, and the low turnout in the European elections is cited as evidence of the lack of legitimacy of the, uh, of the Parliament. But, of course, if you look at turnout across the board uh, in uh, – sorry, I'm just finding my figures here – in democratic systems, you'll see that turnout has been declining at national level at almost exactly the same rate as it's been declining in the European Parliament, by about half a percent per year. Uh, if you take the average decline in turnout in the last two general elections in all EU member states, it's been minus 2.2 percent over a four-and-a-half-year period. If you take the decline in turnout in the European Parliament elections since 1979, uh, it's been uh, an average, as I say, of half a percent from 62 to 43. If you take the decline in national general election turnout from 1979 to, uh, to now, it's been uh, from 85 percent to 68 percent. In other words, what's been happening is not that um, there isn't a growing legitimacy problem for parliaments. Uh, so, sorry, it's not that there is a specific and growing legitimacy problem for the European Parliament, is that there is a generalized legitimacy problem for all parliaments. You see this with the American comparison. We're about to publish in the European Parliament a briefing here which shows the decline in turnout in the U.S. congressional midterm elections, in other words, when they're not electing a government, and the decline in turnout of the European Parliament. And it is exactly, not only at the same level, but at the same rate of decline, astonishingly, during the period since 1979. The Parliament suffered from the fact that it's late in the game, uh, it doesn't have any accumulated capital to draw on in terms of uh, the past when political institutions were respected. And perhaps it also suffers a, a communication problem because of its, its heterogeneous nature. But in my view, the heterogeneous nature is part of the appeal of the European Parliament, an institution which represents or in which are represented 107 already 170 different national political parties that come together to try to make European law. My next and my final point really relates to how serious is the Parliament as a legislator. I would say the European Parliament is very serious as a legislator, and increasingly so, not only because its powers have increased, but because the nature of what it is to be a member of the European Parliament has changed over time and has become more focused on that lawmaking. There's no place really in the Parliament any longer uh, for a sort of good time Charlie approach to 
being an effective MEP. To be an effective MEP, you have to spend a lot of time in the European Parliament, you have to get involved in a lot of detailed files, you have to spend a lot of time in committee, and you have to develop technical expertise. In many ways, again, mirroring what you're describing in the council system. Because being an MEP is more like, now, being a national civil servant uh, than it is perhaps being simply a campaigner for one or other type of Europe. The problem with this, of course, is it's difficult to communicate the detail of that work back home. The files are very technical. Let me just read out some of these. This is the list, as of yesterday, of the 100, since we're talking about co-decision, the 120 co-decision files which are currently open in negotiation between the European Parliament and the Council of Ministers. And incidentally, there is an ambition to try to resolve all of these outstanding pieces of legislation, if possible, by the middle of uh, April when the European Parliament breaks for the European elections. Obviously, it would be impossible to do it in every case. There are only 10 days of plenary left. But let me just read out the titles of these files, just as they come up straight away. Capital increase in the European Investment Fund, European Police College, multi-annual recovery plan for bluefin tuna in the eastern Atlantic and Mediterranean, European political parties and European party foundations. That's perhaps more interesting for people in the audience. Management of expenditure relating to the food chain, animal health, animal welfare. Trade arrangements applicable to certain goods resulting from the processing of agricultural products. Organic farming. Rural development support by the EFRD. And so we've got single CMO regulation. Um, return of cultural objects unlawfully removed from the territory of a member state. Some are politically more interesting than others, but all are very detailed and very technical. And the difficulty that members of the European Parliament have is going back to their constituencies, going back to their regions, and communicating what is being done in that very, very detailed, that very specific process in a way that relates to the general concerns of the citizenry of Europe, and particularly, of course, at a time of deep insecurity and growing uh, fear of the future. Now, part of the solution to this may lie in the very word accountability, not in the sense uh, that I'm going to use it here of accountability to the public, but making the European institutions more accountable to the European Parliament. The accountability, the oversight, the scrutiny of the executive is something which the Parliament, I wouldn't say it's lost sight of, but has devoted less attention and resources to politically than it might. And it's done so precisely for the reason that for the last 20 years it has been fighting to become a player in these kinds of legislative issues. But now that it has succeeded in that respect, it is now in a position where it can take accountability more seriously. But if it does so, there are two preconditions in my view for making that happen. The first is that members themselves must see a political payoff from getting stuck into detailed scrutiny of the executive and communicating that to the public. It can be done. You see that in the US Congress. Uh, for uh, congressmen and senators, uh, putting the executive on the spot, asking difficult questions, um, trying to hold them to account is a critically important part of the, of the lifeblood of what goes on in Capitol Hill. It's not so much except perhaps in the Budgetary Control Committee, the way that the European Parliament at the moment thinks. The second thing that's linked to it is that you have to have structures and resources inside the parliamentary system that support that process. 
If you look at how and why the US Congress is able to hold the executive to, to account, it lies in the fact that it has agencies like the Government Accountability Office, the Congressional Budget Office, the Congressional Research Service, which are extremely well uh, funded and staffed, who generate the questions, suggest the, the issues, um, do the detailed research, prepare the questions, in other words, manufacture the ammo, which can then be fired by the politicians themselves in those hearings. And they devote a lot of time to hearings as well as to legislative work. Congressional committees characteristically spend about half their time in hearings and about half their time in markup sessions. But what's very fascinating on Capitol Hill is that the markup sessions, which is when the legislation is being adopted, are normally held in secret. So the problem that um, Fogel referred to about um, how far you can open up um, the decision-making process in the council or between the council and the parliament when it comes to real choices where there are winners and losers is a recurrent difficulty you see everywhere, even in a system like the American one, which is in many ways the, 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 the litmus test, if you like, of, of openness on, on Capitol Hill. <laughs> And so I think these are the issues that should be addressed uh, now in terms of a, an agenda going forward in terms of improving accountability, but without hopefully losing too much in the sense of efficiency where the European Union, in an unsung way, in my view, scores uh, already quite highly. Yes. Thank you. Well, Anthony, thank you for giving us so much to ponder. Um, um, a really stimulating presentation. Um, and as I said at the beginning, um, let's, uh, let's uh, uh, whilst encouraging everyone to make their points or put their questions in a, in a, concise, in a concise way, don't, don't feel uh, that this has to follow a traditional question and answer format. Uh, people's observations, your thoughts, comments, I think, will all enrich uh, the, what we're trying to achieve this evening. Um, just merely, if you could, if you'd like to say something, please indicate your keenness to do so by raising your hand. Uh, say where you're from, who you are, where you're from, and um, as I say, you keep it as reasonably short and sweet um, if, if you can. Um, I think that um, what we'll do is um, rather than, I mean, not sort of bunch questions, but on the assumption you keep them quite short. We'll try and take three observations or questions at a, at a, at a time, and then give the panel the opportunity to. Um, to answer them. Uh, the gentleman, uh, yes, the, the, the suit there, suit and tie, um, if you'd like to kick off. Yes, thank you. Gary Bonner from the BBA, British Bankers Association. Um, as we see that the, the legislation is getting more and more complex uh, and getting bigger and bigger, we see that a lot of decisions on substance are being pushed to before the legislation into impact assessments, uh, which where the parliament is engaging much more and is paying much more attention to that. We also see a lot of decisions on subject being pushed to level two and level three, delegated acts, implementing acts, and also the ESAs with binding technical standards. We saw a few weeks ago Council clashing with the Commission for the introduction authorization of a GMO uh, corn, where, which was um, <clears throat> objected to by the majority of the member states, and still the Commission was able to, to authorize. We see that very basic decisions in financial services, like what is a derivative, what is a leverage, what should be a leverage ratio for banks, are being defined at level two. What is the the capacity of the parliament and the council as well to look at these issues, to follow these issues? And apologies, this is a traditional question. Thank you. Yes. 
Um, the gentleman in the sort of pinkish, um, dark pink jumper, yes. Peter Sotto in the CPNSS uh, here at the LSE. Um, in the run-up to these elections, it seems to me there is a serious democratic problem in the sense that um, when you have an election you're voting on something, it's important that voters know what they're voting for and what it does. Um, so, for example, um, to work properly, uh, voters need to know exactly what the European Parliament does and doesn't do. They need to have a reasonable idea of what the uh, candidates who are putting themselves forward, what their positions might be on the main issues. It would even help if they have some idea of what the main blocks are within the European Parliament that uh, the different parties here um, affiliate to. Um, it seems to me people don't have much of a deal out the other day. Just take the first as an example. Um, it's very likely that we'll see uh, UKIP uh, do very well in these uh, forthcoming elections. Now, um, UKIP has a perfectly legitimate uh, viewpoint, which is they want the uh, UK to withdraw from the European Union. That's their, if you like, their number one policy. That's obviously a matter for, the Euro for, the, for our national parliament. It's not a matter for the European Parliament. I'm not sure how far um, voters uh, understand that when they vote for UKIP for the European Parliament. Just take an example. Um, many similar things. Uh, and it seems to be a very serious problem also is the, the way that uh, elections are covered in the media, insofar as they're covered at all, which is not very much. They typically, these elections would often be portrayed as, um, as an opinion poll on national parliament. So we saw this is what that would translate into if this were a national election. But it's not a national election. That should be a pretty uh, irrelevant, um, irrelevant point. And, and it means, it, it makes it more likely that people vote on traditional party lines on national issues, not realising that, that, that they're voting for something completely different. Um, I'd be interested to know what observations the panel have on these, uh, on these points. Thank you. Good. We'll take one more question. Uh, the, lady at, the lady at the front here. Yeah. Just wait for the roving mic. Um, I'm just a visitor from the States. I'm a writer. And uh, um, we'll only be here for a few months. And initially, I was um, very much afraid that my questions will sound very um, uninformed and American-centric. Now I know they are. And people <laughs> assume so. So now I'm very free to ask questions. But uh, American Congress has been mentioned a few times and then in comparison and then my understanding of course is more of that and uh, I want when um, comparisons were made um, in terms of accountability um, of the executive uh, power and I was thinking our Congress is so powerful that we could shut down the government and oppose essentially President Obama's every agenda and, uh, and also um, in terms of output um, and I can only envy because our output is so like the farm bills it took forever um, to pass and then I'm also thinking about this gridlock in my congress which is um, the ideology is so powerful so uh, things cannot be done because the country is evenly divided so I, 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 I don't think can only be like things got passed at first reading so, um, <laughs> but I also read about <laughs> little that was covered in the states. How the um, ideology-wise, the more conservative, populist, reactionary kind of a tendency has been uh, surfacing uh, in different European countries in recent elections. I'm just wondering, in terms of the ideology, do you see um, in the future, right now, that it's playing a bigger role in terms of? Thank you. Thank, thank you very much indeed. 
Okay, we'll see what our panels, um, what thoughts, these <coughs> comments have elicited amongst our, our panelists. Um, Sarah. Okay. Um, Gergely, I think that your um, question of the capacity of the decision makers uh, um, at the EU level is obviously a very um, uh, spot-on question because we know that there are limited resources, both for the council, um, although they obviously rely on national administrations and ministries as well as in the parliament. And there is a lot of reliance on expert communities outside of the two institutions themselves. That plays into the larger discussion we are having about accountability, transparency, and who is actually represented in legislative decision-making. And I think that that's a developing field as well. So I think that right now our conclusion must be that the parliament by being a co-legislator and definitely being the most open of institutions is where people probably like yourself would focus your attention um, because there's easy access. There's actually and a surprisingly easy access to decision makers in Brussels in general, but I think for the, for the European Parliament that is um, um, particularly the case. Um, but um, at the same time, um, it's it's um, a, a complex, a complex. Well, it's a complex system, but um, we also see an increased expertise developing, for example, in the European Parliament's committees uh, and working groups as well in the Council. So, um, I I've, I think that uh, Anthony can probably uh, develop a bit more, elaborate a bit more on that point. But capacities are there, but as with also in national politics, um, that's a a complex issue in general. On the second issue of um, whether candidates, whether it's possible for voters to even identify positions of candidates and how they relate to those positions, um, it is a very uh, uh, present problem also for these elections. Uh, one, uh, a lot of people have said that, that perhaps this time around it will be different because Europe has become very um, apparent on so many levels because of crisis, both an economic one and a political one. But the question remains whether the candidates will indeed um, campaign on issues of a European nature rather than based on national politics. I personally don't have my hopes up regarding that, but a number of initiatives have tried to at least spread some information. One is that uh, is led by VoteWatch, and it's a a website called MyVote2014, where you can go in and try and vote on the same pieces of legislation as the parliamentarians do, and then you will get a comparison of where you stand, both party-wise and candidate-wise. So those kind of initiatives, and we will see more and more of them, and for example, The Guardian is now going to replicate our work um, and make use of our information to to get this uh, out ahead of the elections. The same things happen in other countries, and I think that that will help somewhat, but obviously it's not um, necessarily translating into how uh, the campaigns in general will appear uh, uh, in May for the elections. 
the last one on the comparison to the Congress, I, I think that there are a lot of reasons for why one can compare to the Congress. There are also some that, uh, reasons that it doesn't work so well. But on the issue of ideology, it's, uh, we see um, a stronger and stronger division along the um, traditional left-right Access. We've seen a lot of legislation uh, 10, 20, 50, uh, 20 years ago that were much more about the integration uh, dimension, so being pro or anti-Europe. But legislative decision-making, as Anthony said, is by now in policy areas that are already integrated. So we see much more of the political contest between, uh, being between party politics as we know it at national level. We also see that in the council at times between governments. Some of the policy areas such as agriculture, environment, civil liberties, they get that out in the governments as well that we do see left-right tendencies appear. So um, I think that there, there, there are good reasons for comparing to the Congress and I think that ideology is certainly appearing more and more even in the council. I wonder how that tallies with... Um uh, the, the fact that European politics still at times seems to fall foul of what in Britain we call our Trade Descriptions Act. What, what, do, you get, what do you get in the wrapper? Uh, what's actually in, inside? And it's still fantastically complicated. I mean, just as a, just, I could give any number of examples, but I mean, if, if one, for example, were a broadly economically liberal voter and considering how to vote, well, other things being equal, one might assume that um, probably, if this is a very important uh, uh, factor in determining one's vote, one would, other things being equal, be inclined to vote for a liberal, a sort of centrist or centre-right uh, political party. Uh, but um, uh, political cultures vary so much that um, the case of Scandinavia, um, you could be economically liberal and still find not, not too uncomfortable to vote in voting for um, one of the social democratic parties. Uh, whereas in France, a centre-right uh, voter might, uh, a centre-right candidate uh, might well be protectionist by 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 any standard. So um, it just brings home the difficulty of organising political formations across Europe in the way that some of the partisans of politicising Europe to create uh, a European demos still run up against. These are real these are real differences deeply ingrained in national political cultures, and the terminology of uh, politics does not really reflect it. And yet, and I, I, how that. Uh, how that sits with um, this apparent clearer voting on left-right left-right grounds in the par in, in the parliament. Well, the two are not necessarily incompatible, but they're mm. certainly uh, deeply um, sort of they complicate the picture enorm enormously. Um, Anthony, do, do you well like to just to pick up on a couple of the points that have been made uh, in the various interventions? Uh, our friend from the United States. This system that we're, we're describing and we're talking about here in, in the European Parliament and, of course, also in the Council of Ministers is not a bipolar system. It's not a two-party system. It's not even a two-group system. Uh, as I mentioned, there are about 170 different national political parties represented in the European Parliament. They shake down into seven political groups. Maybe we'll have an eighth group shortly in the next European Parliament. Who knows? We'll probably have more than 170 parties. Mm -hmm. The German Constitutional Court just ruled that the 3% threshold, they ruled 
a year or so ago, the 5% threshold was illegal. Now they ruled the 3% threshold. Uh, there's going to be a fracturing of the party system in Germany, which has traditionally been constant, where the representatives, and it is after all the largest member state, have traditionally been concentrated in the largest political group. So we have to wait and see what impact that has. This is a very, very heterogeneous uh, environment. If there were two groups or two parties that controlled the European Parliament, you might well get the tendency towards uh, strong partisanship and bipolar politics that you see on Capitol Hill. But in the absence of any one formation ever thinking that it will command an absolute majority, coalition, compromise, um, accommodation is the name of the game. And that's compounded by a particular feature which is often un recognized in the way the uh, legislative process works, which is that to exercise power in the European Parliament, just as in the Council of Ministers, formally speaking, you need to have a supermajority. And one of the reasons why we've seen the growth of first reading agreements is that as this was only meant to be the preliminary stage in a multi-tier system, uh, first reading agreements, strictly speaking, in the European Parliament do not require an absolute majority, whereas if you go to second or third reading, you do need that. So it was kind of in part to escape from that constraint that first reading agreements, there are many other reasons as well, have grown. The the business of the Parliament is... um, relatively consensual. There's a, a figure here, which I'll, I'll hold up, in the previous vote watch analysis, which was their midterm appraisal of the, of the, uh, the legislature, is it the five-year legislature, and there's a, a pie chart here, and it shows this bit here, 66.66%. Those are the occasions on which the EPP, which is the main centre-right political group, the Socialists and Democrats, the main centre-left group, and ALDE, the Liberal groups, vote the same way in the European Parliament. So what that means is that the more contested votes are only a third. There's an interesting little subset here, 5.5%, where the EPP and the Socialists combine against the Liberals. This, when it happens, always occasions a certain amusement where the centre is isolated in the Parliament. And on the remaining chunks here where the EPP and the Liberals align and where the Socialists and the Liberals align, they each come in at 14%. So that's a fascinating snapshot of the way that uh, politics works in the hemicycle of the European Parliament. But what it shows is that most votes are uncontentious. And these are roll-called votes. The votes that tend to be roll-called votes are the more important votes, characteristically. Um, I won't get drawn into the whole issue of comatology, although it is fascinating, but I suspect that some in the audience might glaze over even more uh, if we go down delegated and implementing acts. But the only thing I would say there is be careful what you ask for. The European Parliament sought to get a veto over delegated acts, which are the most important types of administrative law, in effect, that are passed in the EU system. And uh, the Council of Ministers, uh, of course, has a a comparable veto. And what they found was that there were so many of them that it's actually very, very difficult to get on top of this. So again, if the scrutiny process is going to be meaningful, you have to devote resources and you have to create political incentives for people to want to take uh, that kind of thing seriously. Uh, I suspect we will see a move in that direction over time, but uh, it's quite hard-pounding. Okay. um, Thank you. Maybe before I make a comment, uh, just to um, uh, replicate the, the, uh, the uh, initial comments of, of, of Anthony, I'm, I'm, of course, speaking here in a private capacity, so what I say should be taken as, as, as my views. Um, let, let me just make one comment in relation to comatology 
from the perspective of the Ombudsman as an institution seeking to build the trust of citizens. Of course, the whole issues of comatology, you can understand it as a certain battleground, uh, the issues of whether you, you use implementing acts or delegated acts, but as, a, as a battleground between principally the, the Parliament and the Commission, with the Commission seeking to, um, uh, um, well, to, to well, take views which, in, which, which would reflect a, a greater a preponderance of, uh, of, uh, of, of the Commission in, in terms of um, uh, um, uh, 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 taking action in that area. The, 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 the relevant issue for the Ombudsman, of course, is whether the public has sufficient access to what happens in comatology. I mean, we are looking at, okay, what happens in trilogues. But another area where we have a relative lack of transparency is access to the minutes of uh, meetings that occur in comatology, so public access. I fully agree with Anthony when uh, he makes the point about Parliament uh, uh, ensuring that the other institutions are accountable to Parliament. That's an incredibly important point in a democratic system. Parliament needs to, it's correct to focus on making the institutions accountable. The Budgetary Control Committee, of course, is extremely important and is, and is moving down that area as well. You see, for example, in, uh, as regards uh, withholding the approval of the budgets of the European Medicines Agency, for example, uh, on the basis of executive problems that arose in relation to the functioning of those agencies. But it's also important that we make these processes accountable directly to the public, in addition to making them accountable uh, to Parliament. So an interesting area there is, well, will it be possible to obtain public access to the minutes of these meetings so that we know, the public, know what's happening uh, uh, therein? Thank you. We've got time for a, a few more comments or questions. Um, so please, yes. Uh, the gentleman there, the gentleman at the back, and the gentleman, and the gentleman there. Yes, please. Mirab uh, Akbar, I'm a graduate student at the European Institute. Um, I was wondering about the common facilities that on uh, the high level of efficiency. Um, uh, I was wondering if there might be a downside here, and that um, the high level of efficiency might also be partly a function of uh, yeah, not only the trilogue, but the fact that the right of initiative uh, lies with the Commission. With regard to that, I was somewhat surprised that uh, the Spinelli Group recently uh, released uh, a report advocating for institutional reform, but that uh, even they kind of really accuse of uh, yeah, anti-integrationism, uh, were uh, yeah, intending to give the right of initiative um, to the, uh, the co-legislators. Say that uh, even if uh, one of the two uh, co-legislators would um, you know, shoot down a proposal straight away, that you still operate at a high level of um, information efficiency. Um, I, as a voter, uh, would be equally interested in proposals that pass as well as those that do not pass. Thank you. Interesting question. Thank you very much. Um, yes, then the gentleman uh, at the back. Yeah. Yeah, um, my name is Richard, a student. Um, my question is, um, if, if a sense that transparency register is set, set up for, for lobby groups to register, 
Um, and we, we know that lobby groups play uh, a role in influencing decisions made in the parliament. How come there's been a lot of reluctance for them to register the transparency? Thank you. Uh, gentlemen here, down here at the front, and we might have time for two or three questions afterwards if we can. I think there's an overlap with the question that's already been asked about efficiency, but I would ask about the balance of efficiency to democracy, but also at the same time, the balance between technocracy and uh, democracy, and particularly on the banking question, it's interesting how many people in the bank session knew the detail of what was going on Okay, I'll just take two of them, I think, and then leave. Um, so I think I'll start off with um, whether there's a downside to the level of efficiency. Yeah, as I mentioned before, I certainly think that there is, and you know, focusing on the council side, you know, we have seen this um, increase in a division between <coughs> leaders and followers. One could be a bit more rude and say that in the EU in general, we're starting to see an A and a B team of decision makers. There are some that will have powerful positions, lead on um, pieces of legislation, and others will simply have to follow, partly because they don't have the resources and the time to keep up with everything going through because the bulk is so big. But in the council, certainly, there seems to be some patterns to some countries having the lead more often than others. It has to do with resources, the size and the power, etc., in the council. But that is obviously a democratic of democratic interest. What that means in terms of the policies we also see come out from the council. So yes, I do think that the high level of efficiency, even if it's a technical matter, those technical matters have consequences for the people that the legislation actually applies to that um, it needs to be done in a, a different and more accountable way. And I think that um, the council is the first uh, point, uh, body to point fingers at when, it, when we talk about accountability in general. But that m leads me also to your, to your question about how we also hold the MEPs accountable. I think it all stems from the same source, which is that national parliaments play, must play a key role in... Um, EU policy making not so much in the proposition phase as some would otherwise argue but much more in the accountability of our MEPs and of our ministers and heads of governments so I think that everything boils down to accountability mechanisms between the council and the parliament where the parliament has the possibility for scrutinizing in detail legislation if it's not a co-legislator but also that national parliaments need to step up the game and have a stronger um, system in place for scrutiny of their MEPs as well as their governments. We have different systems across Europe, so I'm from Denmark, and there you have a very strong Europe committee that actually um, is set up to give a mandate to ministers <coughs> before they go and negotiate in Brussels. 
They also have question time of the MEPs. So it's a very different kind of ownership that the parliament at home takes of EU affairs in Brussels and Strasbourg compared to, for example, here, where you have much more of the ex-post scrutiny. MEPs, governments, they have already decided on things and then they have to go home and explain what came out of it. So I think the key certainly lies also with national parliamentary involvement in that respect. Thank you. Anthony. Uh, uh, Thank you, Morris. Um, I'll pick up on the question that was asked about the right of initiative, if I may, which I think is a very, very interesting uh, issue. Uh, As um, most people in the audience probably know, the European Commission basically has, in the jargon, the exclusive right of initiative in the EU system. It puts forward legislative proposals, and it's rare, therefore, in a democratic system that parliamentarians cannot formally uh, propose law in their own parliament. The Lisbon Treaty slightly changed that because it's recognised something called legislative initiative reports or le- the legislative initiative of the Parliament mm-hmm. where the, commission can, the, the Parliament can ask the Commission to bring forward a piece of legislation and the Commission, if it wants, just says no. I think the Parliament's in quite a strong strategic position to extract concessions like that at this point in the five-year cycle. Yeah. As commissioners will get nominated and they will come before committees of the European Parliament for hearings and as the President of the Commission will be expected to put forward a kind of five-year programme, the Parliament, if it can agree on a kind of broadly-based agenda, may well find, that especially this time, that the Commission uh, picks up on it. It did a little bit of that last time, and I think it's planning to do quite a bit of it this time. I mean, to give you an example, my own department, the European Parliamentary Research Service, today published a document called Mapping the Cost of Non-Europe, which identifies 24 areas of potential action on which there's broad-based support in the Parliament and tries to identify what the potential economic benefits of such measures would, would be completion of the digital single market, better coordination between national and European development policy, uh, and so on. But this debate goes, the debate as to whether or not the Commission should have this right of initiative goes right the way back to the Spinelli draft treaty itself 30 years ago. And I remember when I first came to the European Parliament as a very young uh, figure, being quite astonished by the intensity of views on this question. For some people, the Commission's right of initiative is the absolute holy grail. For others, it just seems a, a kind of technical thing which should be, should be shared. And even um, uh, the true believers uh, of federalism, if you like, are divided on that, on that point. Of course, there are other factors as well. The European Council has become a bigger player in shaping what the Commission does. And I think better lawmaking or good lawmaking... And the European Council are sometimes opposites. If you look at legislation that has recently been criticised, it very often comes in a very rapid way as a result of a European Council decision. Heads of government say, we must do something. And then the Commission rushes out a proposal, if you like, not in the normal cycle now of a lot of advanced consultation, uh, an impact assessment, and, and all the rest. And you've got two types of legislation, I think, increasingly. You've got legislation which is part of this better lawmaking cycle, very much thought through, less of it, probably better legislation, and you sometimes have rapid response legislation, which may or may not go a bit off the rails. But this is the nature of political institution, and there's no way that you can just depoliticize the EU and completely remove the fact that the Commission, like everybody else, is subject to political pressure, which brings the question around to the issue of lobbyists. Um, 
I mean, lobbying is a very uh, powerful factor in the Brussels system, and it's bound to be in one where governments do not really control the, the majority. I used to work in the Treasury as special advisor there here in Britain some, some years ago, and we received a lot of lobbying about the budget, as you can imagine, and there was a special system for dealing with these representations. Uh, there, was very, there was very little lobbying vis-a-vis the House of Commons. Once the um, finance bill was passed, of course, people would come forward with amendments, but everybody knew that what would really matter was a decision taken in the Treasury or between the Treasury and Number 10. It wasn't actually what a particular backbencher, however powerful, felt. It may be a bit different at the moment when the government, uh, no one party has a majority in the House of Commons. But in a system where there's no government controlling Parliament, lobbying is bound to be a factor. But there have been very strenuous attempts to tighten up uh, the regulation of the lobbying interaction with MEPs and the new code of conduct that was introduced uh, three or four years ago was an important part of that in response to the, f- the famous sting operation done by the Sunday Times uh, Insight team, which ended in, if I'm not mistaken, uh, at least one person uh, going to, to jail. Mm-hmm. Um, Finally, if I may, uh, I'd like to just make passing reference to the Citizens' Initiative. I think that's another way now of access for the general public into the European political uh, agenda. And it's one that I think we're going to see over the next few years will grow in importance. We had the first hearing in the European Parliament, I think two weeks ago, on the first Citizens' Initiative that successfully got the million (coughs) signatures. And that probably will be an important part of the interaction uh, in in coming years. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, as regards the issue of okay, the uh, the uh, uh, the power of initiative of the Commission, I don't think I can say anything else because, other than to say, I completely agree with what uh, Anthony has said. Uh, um, it is, of course, a reflection of of of, of the uh, increasing power of Parliament that the position, the 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 privileged position of the Commission is. I wouldn't say eroded, but it's been to some extent shared with Parliament through these mechanisms, which are, I, I, I know are being increasingly exercised uh, uh, and, and, and are likely to be. Um, clearly, when the Commission was the sole institution which could validly put forward that it, was, that it represented the EU perspective, it was appropriate for, for the Commission to have that sole prerogative. It's arguable now that, uh, that, that Parliament can to some extent, share that, share that role. So I would share all of the, the views of Anthony in that respect. Um, in relation to lobbyists, maybe I, I can say a bit more because this is something that uh, the Ombudsman has looked at very carefully. And the key issue is whether the, the lobbyist register becomes uh, mandatory because at the moment it is voluntary. So there is no obligation on the part of uh, um, uh, 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 um, companies, NGOs, uh, uh, other entities to, to register on, 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 on the... Uh, and it's a difficult issue um, uh, because, of course, legally, how does one require... and What, what is lobbying? I mean, how do you define it? And I, I think, basically, there, there has to be uh, um, action. My view, my personal view, is that, that the institutions themselves and individual MEPs... Um, uh, can play a major role in regulating this. If, if, an, if an MEP or, or an institution, for example, the Commission, were to take the view that they will only 
um, uh, allow to take part in, let's say, stakeholder uh, groups, those entities that, are, that have voluntarily put themselves on the register, you can effectively ensure that, to a great extent, that that, that register will de facto become, become, become mandatory. And then the other issue is, okay, let's say you're on the, 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 the register. Is that sufficient? I think that just simply identifies you as, as a lobbyist. It doesn't indicate what you do with that particular status. It gives a certain amount of information, only a certain amount of information, about uh, who you are, what amount of money you spend on, on, on lobbying. Of course, that, that is not, and I would say cannot be verified. It would be a task which would raise a lot of legal issues, but also would be an enormous administrative burden. So I think the issue is, yes, you need the framework of a lobbyist register, and it's, we have come a long way in that respect. Um, I think it would be difficult to make it mandatory. I think the answer must lie with the institutions themselves and how they decide to interact with, uh, um, uh, uh, with lobbyists. Just to give you an example, the Ombudsman dealt with a case a number of years ago concerning letters sent by Porsche to Commissioner Verheugen relating to uh, the uh, emissions legislation. And uh, eventually, after a certain amount of reticence, the, the letters were released. I mean, so it is important that institutions, when they are lobbied, are willing to be open about, uh, about the fact that they're being lobbied and precisely what they're being lobbied about, so that we have a degree of, we have a degree of scrutiny, accountability in, in that process, because, as Anthony pointed out, it is an important part of, uh, of, 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 of the uh, uh, rule-making process. And it's, it's something to be encouraged in the sense that we want participation from stakeholders. The, the lobbyist register is not only companies, it's NGOs, it's all forms of stakeholders. We want that process to happen, but in, in, a, in a transparent manner. And if I may just add on that, uh, the European Parliament has advocated exactly that uh, outcome, that there should be a mandatory arrangement, but the Council will not join the interinstitutional negotiation and discussion on it, and the European Commission says that there isn't a sufficiently strong legal base for this, and that if Article 352 were used as the, the basis it would requiring unanimity, it would mean that you would get a very dilute outcome that could be uh, less effective than the status quo, which is essentially voluntary. Mm -hmm. And that's why, in fact, the Parliament and, the, and the, the Commission have ended up going down increasingly the route that you describe of, of, of actually giving people incentives to register in the belief, and I think it's probably the right belief, that uh, if the lobbying process is open, people have to make the best case that can be made uh, as to why legislation should or shouldn't be changed in particular ways. Okay, I'm going to take uh, just two more, two more observations or questions. So, is there anyone I've cruelly overlooked? Um, and uh, but I'd like to wrap, wrap up by eight o'clock. And just to remind you, there are there will be drinks. Uh, there will be drinks uh, uh, afterwards in the in the atrium. Um, okay, the gentleman there in the light shirt. And the gentleman in the middle, nobody else, and no more ladies have caught my attention. So, there were three uh, of them. Sorry? There were three of those on? Yeah, well, two of Right, okay. Well, uh, thank you for this great discussion. <laughs> okay, anyway, let's start. Yes, please. Um, do you think the appointment of the next Commission President, based on the results of the election, would increase accountability and citizens' engagement? Okay, good one. Yeah. Uh, and, yes. 
Thank you. Uh, I'm from uh, Denmark. Um, you said uh, it's well known that accountability and efficiency is uh, two ways of generating legitimacy. And uh, you said the European Union was already effective, so what can we do and what is being done in order to generate more accountability? That's my question. Okay, sorry, there was one other person I gathered. I have to get it up. Okay, yeah. My name is Sarah Jung from the LC. Uh, just a basic, very basic question. Uh, Sarah just said that the national parliament must be responsible in the end. Uh, it must ha- hold hearings for the executives. And Anthony just now said that the MEP should also uh, simulate the U.S. Congress to hold hearings, hold hearings on the executives as well. So my question is, isn't there a sort of coalition? Collision or coalition? Good, thank you. Okay. Um, well, um, I th- on that last point, I think there is a potential coalition because, of course, they're, they're really scrutinizing different executives. I mean, the national parliaments are scrutinizing national governments and the European Parliament is scrutinizing, above all else, the, the European Commission. And so I think there's the potential for a partnership there. The Parliament has been putting a lot of effort into trying to build relationships with national parliaments. The old days when there was a sort of... Uh, uh, kind of Arnold's length attitude on the part of the Parliament towards towards national parliaments has really come and gone, and we've invested huge efforts at a lot of different levels to try and make the national parliaments welcome in the Parliament uh, in Brussels. I mean, physically welcome by providing office space, and I think now all 20, 28 national parliaments, <coughs> certainly 27, have uh, offices, but also in terms of joint committee meetings, uh, joint parliamentary meetings, which are much wider, uh, in terms of um, a whole series of dialogues. Um, so the potential is there. One of the problems, however, is that the number of national parliamentarians who are genuinely interested in EU scrutiny is relatively modest. There are about, from memory, 9,600, I think, national parliamentarians in the European Union My suspicion is that less than 500 of them are seriously interested in the detailed process of looking at European Union legislation at a national level and holding their governments to account. So you have a relatively small pool from which you're drawing. And the big problem, I think, is at national level that it's quite difficult for a politician to make their name through effective European scrutiny. So, again, it comes down to... Uh, visibility, incentives, and so on. Having said that, I think it's definitely moving in the right direction, and the Lisbon Treaty has made a positive difference in that regard. The the yellow and orange card procedures in respect of subsidiarity, uh, the so-called Barroso procedure, if I'm not mistaken, about national parliaments giving opinion, and every year hundreds of opinions are given on pieces of legislation now, has mainstreamed European discussion more Uh, among backbench activity than it used to be. And, of course, the advent of qualified majority voting and co-decision have had a very interesting effect because previously national ministers were more or less able to say, well, I speak on behalf of my national parliament and its view is such and such, and therefore I have a veto in effect of this reflecting the national view. But the moment you have fewer vetoes and you have the council sharing its legislative power with the European Parliament, the minister is automatically on the defensive 
because he or she knows that they might take a mandate, for example, from the Falketing European Affairs Committee and not be able to deliver it in the Council, let alone the position the Council then might take in a co-decision discussion with the Parliament. And that therefore means that national ministers have a vested interest in making fewer commitments rather than more to their national parliament for fear that they're going to be embarrassed and appear to be defeated. So there's a strange paradox at the heart of this whole situation. Okay. I think the, um, the, the point in relation to the, uh, the parliamentary elections and whether or not the election of uh, a president of the commission resulting from the uh, parliamentary elections will uh, alter accountability and citizen engagement. You can look at it in terms of accountability in terms of in the election process itself. I would have, we have yet to see how that will occur, how the nature of that uh, 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 election process will be altered by the fact that for the first time we have candidates presenting themselves as uh, um, uh, potential um, uh, uh, presidents of, of, of the commission. You can look at it from another perspective which would be if we have a president of the commission who comes from parliament, and you can argue, well, to what extent they, they will be MEPs, but to what extent do they come from parliament? I presume one of the candidates, at least, currently president of, 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 of parliament, would, if he, uh, Mr. Schultz, if he becomes president of the commission, will bring to the commission a sensibility about accountability towards parliament. So Anthony was mentioning the whole issue of uh, Parliament's increasing role in cooperating with the Commission in terms of uh, uh, the Commission's power of initiative. I would imagine, against my personal view, that the Commission will become more sensitive to uh, that, you, you could call it accountability to Parliament's political will, uh, um, uh, uh, when we have a President of Parliament, a President of the Commission that comes from um, uh, uh, Parliament. So we can. I think. I think it will. It will certainly. It will certainly. I, I put it this so way. You said accountability and citizen engagement. The more accountable they are, the greater level of citizen engagement you're going to you're going to have during the election process. But I would bring it a bit further than that and say we could see greater accountability of the Commission towards Parliament, depending upon the nature of the person who's uh, eventually, uh, and assuming, of course, that the Council plays ball with the, in terms of the results of the European parliamentary elections, which is not, is it a foregone conclusion? No. no? So. <laughs> By no means. Yeah, well, yeah. I think I might just finish then on Please a do. slightly yeah. more sceptical yeah. note than what you were saying, Fargo, because yeah. I think that Schulz has certainly not secured that seat at all, no, and um, the parliament certainly has not um, secured their power in that nomination yeah. either. The, legal text is that the European Council will appoint the Commission President, taking into consideration the outcome of the elections, and that can mean a lot of things. So, of course, the governments are now carefully also considering what precedents they will set for future elections and whether or not they should make it a first, the first situation now where the Parliament has a real say. That will then mean that we will see that happen in every single of the next appointments, that the Parliament will have a real say. <coughs> we could see completely 
unknown candidates mm. uh, as the debate is at the moment be f being flown in for, for that position. So I don't think that we should expect a lot of engagement necessarily on the basis of the appointment of the Commission President, but I think that this is about planting a seat as well f for the debate in general and the longer-term consequences. And I do think that this is about the institutional power and the oversight that the <coughs> powers that the European Parliament will have. And that's an interesting development. But I don't think that right now for these elections that will actually get people up from their mm. sofas and go and vote uh, on whether we will have any of those candidates to, to lead the next commission. President, uh, the next commission. Good. Well, unless our panel have any <coughs> final comments, no. Um, well, I think hopefully we can all agree we've had a really, really ri rich discussion uh, this evening, and um, uh, that is largely thanks to our panel, but also for some excellent comments and conversation and. Uh, Questions from the floor. So, thank. I think we can thank all of ourselves for particularly <laughs> our three fine panelists. I'd like to also to thank the European Parliament Information uh, Information Office for uh, partnering us at LSE and uh, supporting this uh, supporting this event. And um, um, and please uh, keep a lookout uh, for mailings and publicity on the LSE's website for further events uh, in this uh, in in this series. Um, and I'm sure in time on Odelisi fashion we'll want to express our thanks uh, to our excellent, uh, excellent panellists and as I say please uh, do uh, uh, come and join us uh, for a drink afterwards in the atrium. For those who don't know the LSE you cross the concourse to go through the main entrance, the main building of the LSE uh, into the entrance hall uh, uh, and then take a right and just follow the corridor and you come to, you'll come to the, the atrium easily enough. And um, good. Well, thank you all, and thanks again to our panel.